The reading for the day comes from Genesis 2, 18 through 23a. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We're in week two of a series called Not Your Abomination, where we are really dedicating some time to unpacking those um, those scriptures that some of the anti-queer haters have really picked up as their favorites, pulled out of context, and used to harm LGBTQ people. Now, uh, we started last week with an overview of how to de-weaponize the Bible, uh, an understanding that the Bible is actually not something that can be picked apart in that way, and that if we actually want to appreciate the Bible, we need to understand it in a totally different context. But I did promise you that we were going to go verse by verse through those seven favorites uh, of the haters and talk about how to um, think through them on our own terms, how to reconnect with God um, in light of these scriptures and the way they've been abused, and potentially how to engage with the haters if we so choose. I was originally going to break these seven verses into two weeks. Um, I was going to do the stories first, Adam and Eve and Sodom and Gomorrah, and then these kind of smaller excerpts as part two. But I got into it, y'all, and I got to say, <laughs> I love the Bible. I love the Bible, and Adam and Eve are so cool that they're going to get their own week. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to feel the same way next week with Sodom and Gomorrah. These texts that have been used so thoroughly to harm us but are actually like very cool um, very dense, meaningful stories that tell us beautiful things about ourselves and God that have been twisted, have been flattened, have been morphed into something disgusting for cruel people to hurl at vulnerable people um, as, a, as a justification for their hatred. So uh, we are going to start today with Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Now, if you've been around the queer block, you've probably heard that phrase before. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And honestly, it's been around so long that it's almost a joke now. <laughs> a lot of queers have actually done some incredible work reclaiming that idea, uh, putting our own spin on it, and throwing it back into the universe. 
I, in a brief survey of memes this week, for my own pleasure and joy, really, um, I pulled a couple of my favorites for you that Cameron, voice of God, <laughs> will read aloud for us. Cameron, what's the first queer take on Adam and Steve? It's Adam and Steve, not Adam and Dave. They broke up a while ago. Are you even on Instagram? Catch up, straights. And, of course, there's the trans take on it. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Do not dead name Eve. Dead naming is wrong. And, finally, my favorite, the bad news for most of the straights out there. Uh, it's Adam and Eve, not Robert and Sarah. Sorry, you two. Can't get married. Guess not. And that's the same logic. We're actually going to spend the entire sermon realizing that it's the same logic telling Robert and Sarah that they can't get married because they are not Adam and Eve. <laughs> but this is something that a lot of us have heard. Shout out in comments if you've ever heard that idea. Um, and if you haven't, welcome to the world of queerphobia in this particular angle. Um, they like to rhyme, but, uh, but shout out if you've heard this at some point or another, hurled at you or someone you love or just out into the universe. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Now, the first time I heard this vitriol spewed in a way that really stuck with me was when I was in college, uh, our campus was visited by Brother Jed. Many of you may know Brother Jed because his whole mission seems to be going to college campuses and yelling at everyone about a lot of dumb things, pretending that those things are coming from the Bible. Now, Brother Jed had a lot of bones to pick, but he was really, really anti-queer. And he would say these things, <laughs> it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, while accompanying his, his vitriol with some really vulgar hand gestures that I won't recreate here, but were meant to simulate genitals. And he would sort of imply that there was only one way to put them together, which always made me sad, because I was like, Brother Jed, you just got to get more creative with your puzzles. But tellingly, this guy also had all sorts of horrible misogynist things to say. He famously would repeat that his wife goes from the kitchen to the bedroom to the kitchen. And this stuff was so gross, just like so horrible on its face, that even my peers at my evangelical conservative campus ministry were embarrassed by it. They didn't want to be associated with it. They said this is not the way to evangelize, to spread the good news of Jesus. And so they would come with me um, to the quad where we would pray, where we'd offer a different um, take on what it meant to follow Jesus. But ultimately, those same people, those same beloved community members of mine who were so embarrassed by Brother Jed, really held a lot of the same stupid logic about this passage. Not just the anti-gay, but the misogynist and ultimately the transphobic understandings of Adam and Eve which is a real bummer because these creation stories, and again, if you, if you were here with us last week, you may remember there are two of them back to back in Genesis. These creation stories are gorgeous. They have different details, different origins, and they tell different true things about God. But that's because the ancient readers of these stories 
knew the difference between fact and truth. They knew that a story could contain truths, were vehicles for truths about God and about humanity, and that it could be beautiful, and that those stories didn't have to like line up fact by fact because that wasn't the point of them. So we're going to revisit these two creation stories today. I'm so excited to dig in because they're awesome. And we're going to really comb through, like, what do they actually mean? Where are the haters getting this stupid Adam and Steve nonsense? And how can we respond? So story number one, you open the Bible. And there was nothing except God. Except maybe there was something with God. Maybe God was in the chaos or the darkness or the deep. In any case, God was mysterious and big and maybe plural in some sort of way because God self-referred in terms like us and our. Side note, maybe that means that God should be referred to by other people as they, them, and theirs. But God created. And all of the boundaries and order and creation that we know comes into being through the power of God's will and intention and creation. So God starts with the heavens and the earth, then to light separated from darkness. God started naming and categorizing things, assigning meaning and order. You see, giving someone their name, giving something a name and an order, is about understanding meaning, saying that there is intention and purpose to the universe and that God is behind it, that God has a plan, a thoughtful plan for all of these things. And so God called the light day and God called the darkness night. Now, the next thing that we learn in this story is that God creates a dome in the waters to separate waters from waters. Now, if that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, if you're like, okay, are there like domes in the ocean? No, what, what we're talking about here is the idea that before the earth, there was chaos, but chaos was deep, dark, mysterious waters. And so what we have here is the concept that basically the ocean and outer space are made of the same ocean of chaos and... God chose to separate them with a dome of the sky to kind of carve out a space in the chaos for humanity and for the rest of creation. Now, I don't know about all the sea creatures that just love to live in the chaos. If you've seen enough nature spe specials, you know that like they definitely look like they belong there. But the sky is just a dome that separates the waters of outer space with the waters of the ocean. And if it feels like we're drifting from science already, we are. <laughs> and that's fine. So the ocean is chaos. Space is chaos. They're the same. But God carves out this space for us so that we can exist. In the midst of this chaos, we get to exist in this pocket of the universe. And under that dome, which God calls sky, God gathers some of those waters back, pulls them in, reins them in to reveal land. Now at this point, God is creating the stars and the sun and the moon. How exactly we had days and nights before that, because this is like the third or fourth day, I don't remember which. Uh, I don't know, because it's not science. The science is not the point. 
The point is that once God has land, God's like, okay, stars and and one specific star, the sun and the moon, and, and we're going to have this order day and night. It's all going to come together and be lit and ruled by these celestial bodies. The day will be ruled by the sun. The night will be ruled by the moon. So when we ask those questions like, where did light come from before? We're asking the wrong question. When we ask, how did days happen without a sun and a solar system? We are asking the wrong questions. These are not the points of the story. They are flourishes to say that these magnificent creations were intentions of God. So next, God creates sea creatures and birds and says, be fruitful and multiply. And then after that, earth creatures. Earth creatures get uh, separated into cattle, creeping things, and wild animals. I'm not sure that's the taxonomy I would choose, um, but that's what we got in the scriptures. Cattle, interestingly, seems to imply domesticated animals, which is a little weird to think about how animals could be domesticated before humans are even on the scene. But again, not the point. So after God had created all of this, at the very end, God's finale of creation, the, the, the masterpiece creation, God says, I'm going to create humankind. Let us create humankind in our own image. And so God does. God creates humanity in God's own image. And the scripture says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Blessed them said, oh, this is the best thing I've made all day. Or, in scripture, very good. But God says, fill the earth. You're the best thing I made. Now I'm going to take a nap. That was the seventh day. Now, this story is huge and marvelous, and it is, you know, this, this magnificent way to open up our story of God. It means a lot of things. It means God is big. It means God is in charge. But it also means that God created not out of nothing, but out of chaos. And so our God is a God of order and intention, of meaning. The story communicates that God deems this creation good. And humanity, the most good of all creation, God's own image reflected in humanity, not just males, but females, too, were created in the image of God, which in an ancient text is incredibly radical. When we compare it to other origin stories in other nearby religions, we get to see what matters most to the folks who are communicating this story about what we believe about our God and about ourselves. Now, other creation stories um, usually are related to a pantheon of gods, a ton of gods, that are often very human in nature. Um, they have human foibles and personalities, and they're always in conflict. <laughs> usually, the stories of creation related to these big groups of gods are about gods warring with one another and accidentally creating out of out of that kind of chaos. Norse mythology kind of haunted me as a child when I learned about it. When I realized that there was a big fight between the gods, <laughs> some of them were slain, 
and the, the blood of one of the gods became the rivers. The brains of a god became clouds. Like, I, I think I learned that when I was 11, and I'm still thinking about it two decades later because it bums me out. But in these stories, people are accidents or servants or just somehow less than gods who are meant to worship and adore and make offerings, but are kind of an afterthought. But in this story, in our creation story, we name that God, who is the Trinity, who is in relationship with God's self, but who is one, not some chaotic family that hates each other, but one God in deep loving relationship with God's own self creates with purpose and intention. God likes what God creates. Human beings are not afterthoughts or slaves. We are made in God's own image, and God is proud of us. God is proud of all creation, but most proud of us. So this story is really gorgeous and holds so much powerful meaning. And what is the meaning that the haters take away from it? Well, this is one of the texts that people use to be transphobic. In particular, um, they want to quibble with non-binary people. Most of the Adam and Eve, Adam and Steve stuff is in story two, so we will get to that, I promise. But the human beings aren't even named in this story. This is a different kind of tale. And so the anti-trans rhetoric is really what, um, what gloms onto this one, and particularly, again, anti-non-binary. The text does use a lot of binary tropes. We've got night and day, light and dark, waters and land. So in some ways, it seems like easy pickings. God made them male and female, not non-binary. I get this in some of the hate mail that comes my way, um, where people are like, this is not scriptural. But the silly thing about this that becomes really obvious when you think about this story for more than five hateful minutes is that these binaries that are named night and day, light and dark, water and land, it, doesn't or it does not erase the existence of gradients. It is not an inherently non-binary experience as though the shore does not exist because there is only land and sea. This is meant to show the scope of what God created. When we talk about God, we do it in these grand terms, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Now, in our own alphabet, when we say that something goes from A to Z, we're not trying to say that there are only two letters of the alphabet. <laughs> to the contrary, we're trying to give a scope, a breadth of what we're talking about, to say from the beginning to the end and everything in between. It is the everything in between that is impressive. It's not just like, oh yeah, that person covered A and Z. No, that person covered it from A to Z, every point in between. And as many trans people like to point out with this scripture, it's not like we experience noonday sunshine and then the pitch black of, of night, like God just turns off a light switch every 12 hours. We have sunsets. We have sunrises. Some people argue that they're the most beautiful and intriguing of them all. We have things like twilight. 
And just because the scripture doesn't name that God created twilight doesn't mean that twilight is an abomination. <laughs> and, uh, and if if getting really granular about gender really bums you out, if you get thrown off by terms like demiboy or intersex, know that we have terms like civil twilight, nautical twilight, and astronomical twilight. And no Bible-thumping creationists are telling meteorologists that they are defying God's order. Because we understand nuance when we want to. There is day. There is night. There is something in between called twilight. And even within twilight, a whole variety of categories worth giving name to. Because, as we know from this creation story, giving names means giving meaning. Giving order, helping us to relate well between different experiences. This is a godly and holy thing to do, to name who we are in the world. The idea that God created man and woman and therefore there are, are no non-binary people makes literally as much sense as God created day and night and therefore sunrise is a made-up snowflake idea by social justice warriors. This is a selective interpretation. It's willful ignorance of nuance. And frankly, it's disrespectful to the creation story. Which brings us to story number two. Now, story number two is similar but different. It has different origin stories. It's trying to communicate different complementary things about who God is. In story number two, God does seem a little bit more human than the big, lofty God of story one. We see God experimenting. First, God made the heavens and the earth. But it says, No plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. So next, God's like, okay, I'm diving in. I'm going to make a dirt person. So God gathers the dirt of the earth, because God has created the earth and the heavens. But God's like, okay, the first thing I want to make out of the earth, out of my creation, is a person. So God gathers the dirt from the ground, forms it into the shape of a person, breathes into the nostrils the breath of life, ruach, that Hebrew word is, the spirit of God, the equivalent of pneuma, which comes in the Greek. That is the term we use for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God goes into this dirt through the nostrils. Some describe it as a holy kiss. God kisses this dirt person. And the dirt person becomes alive, animated by the very breath of God to be a living being. Now we call this being Adam. When we call that creature Adam, we are liking it, likening it to Steve. We're treating it like a name, like Joe, like, no, this is not what it is. We made that name out of something else. Adam, the name, comes from Adam, which means dirt person. Because it turns out in Hebrew, the word for earth is Adama, and the word for dirt person is Adam, Adam. So we have the Adam, who is not given a gender, is not understood to be man in any particular sense other than human. And 
These are the reasons that we need this scriptural context, that we need historical scholarship to understand. Because if we don't know our Hebrew and we're just like, oh yeah, God created Steve, we are missing something. God created a dirt person. We are the ones that assigned gender. So when we have those context clues that God took the Adamah, the earth, and formed into a person, the Adam, we might as well call that person human. God makes a human. So now that God has a human, God wants to give this human a good place to live. So God creates the garden. But even in this beautiful, lush garden, the human is lonely. So God's like, okay, it's not good for you to be alone. Um, I'm going to make some other stuff for you. This is where we get that experimental, collaborative God. God makes a bunch of animals to keep the human company. And in fact, lets this human being, the Adam, lets the human name them. Let's the human give order and meaning to the creatures around them. But they don't have the breath of God in them in the same way. They're different from the Adam. And so the Adam is still lonely. And God says, you need a helper. Now, side note, people have used this idea of helper, help meet, help mate, however you want to go about it. People have used that idea to denigrate the second human that comes along for a very long time, which is a real bummer because this word, again in the Hebrew, this word for helper, mostly in scripture, describes God. God is our helper. God is our rescuer, is often translated, usually in the context of war. That like we need God who is going to come with power and support and help. God, help me when I cry out. Who is to be my helper? And so God says, on the daily, beyond me, you need a helper. You need an advocate. You need a warrior, a rescuer, who's going to be by your side, who's going to be your partner. And the term partner is clear. And these animals just aren't cutting it. So you're going to need a true partner, an equal. So God puts the human, the Adam, to sleep and takes part of them out. The scriptures decide on a rib. And from that piece of the first human, another human is made who is different, but the most same of anything else in the universe. And when those two human beings are woken up, the first Adam says of the other, at last, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because out of man this one was taken. And this is the first time we get any sort of understanding of gender or gender difference here. Because the Adam who was one becomes two and they are called man and woman. This is meant to signify a relationship, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, my other half. That closeness is not about gender at all, though they are able to name that they are different in this particular way. They are not meant to be carbon copies of one another, but different expressions of humanity, different expressions of dirt people. 
And though it is telling that the first human who becomes a man must offer his body to bring in the second human who becomes a woman, we see then that that woman will offer her body through pregnancy to bring in more men and women and non-binary people into the world. And so when I read this, what I see in the scriptures is that we are all bone of each other's bones, flesh of each other's flesh. And it has been so since the beginning, since God created us out of dust and divine breath and flesh. Now, some of you know that I am very pregnant at the moment. And I feel like I will never stop talking about it because now that I have experienced pregnancy, I think it's wild. One of the experiences I have of pregnancy is that I need to take a lot of calcium. And the reason I need to take a lot of calcium is tangentially related to the fact that I'm growing a human baby who needs to like grow some bones. But what I have learned is that when I take calcium, it is not so that I can ingest the calcium and it goes to the baby and the baby builds bones out of it. It's because this baby will literally leach the calcium from my bones and I'm just trying to replenish to keep up. This baby is literally bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And this story of the creation of humanity says, yes, that was on purpose and it has always been. All humanity is related to one another. We are all one human family, intimately linked, sacred to one another. The scripture goes on to say, for this reason, man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, one of the things I think is really interesting, again, to this Hebrew context, is that that word that we translate as wife actually literally means woman. But we just impart that meaning because we assume, like, oh, if they're going to be one flesh in it, they better be married. But the scripture says that's why a man clings to his woman. <laughs> they're not even married. But this word, clinging, or Sometimes we translate it as cleaving. It's the same exact term used later for Ruth and Naomi, these two women who become one flesh, who leave the context of their family of origin to forge a new family together. This idea of leaving our family of origin and cleaving to someone and becoming one flesh, it's about intimacy. It's about new family. It's about the joy of finding a part of yourself and a new sense of home. Now, this is also not to say that that bit is mandatory. Singleness is great, and you're not missing anything. It's just a celebration of one of the ways to be human. And somehow, these anti-queer haters can read that and understand that just because some people cleave to one another doesn't mean we all have to. You would be hard-pressed to find Adam and Stevers who think that being single or celibate is wrong. This is not a mandate. It is a celebration. And this is one of the main problems with these misinterpretations. They selectively assume that the celebration of one specific thing, which opens a universe of many various things, comes at the exclusion of other specific things that we would like to get rid of. 
Celebration of day and night excludes twilight or sunrise. Celebration of the diversity of humanity from man to woman and everything in between doesn't have room for everything in between. It excludes non-binary people. Celebration of a man joining flesh with a woman who is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, excludes the idea that two men or two women or two anyone can do the very same, even though the scriptures themselves name in the same exact terms that this is the relationship of Ruth and Naomi. There are so many meanings to this text, this second creation story. God is collaborative. Creation is an experiment. Human beings are co-creators of order and meaning with God. People have intimate relationship with the earth from which we came. We contain the spirit of God inside us. That is what makes us human. We are all of the same flesh and bone. We were not created to be alone, but in family and community. We create and form new families, sometimes through sexual relationships. And these new iterations of family are just as legitimate as relationships through birth because it is flesh joining together in a new way. Humans in sexual relationships are supposed to be helpers, rescuers, warriors for one another, equals. Projecting homophobia into this complex and beautiful story is disrespectful to the text. It's proof texting, but in the laziest way. Oh, it's Adam and Eve, though. Like, this is why I love that third tweet. Sorry, Robert and Sarah. Like, only Adams and Eves can ever be married. Because that's clearly what the text is talking about. I see an Adam and an Eve. I don't see any Roberts. I don't see any Sarahs. So, unless you're an Adam and an Eve, you're just out of luck. Like, that's patently stupid. To think that the only things explicitly named in the text can follow the pattern of the story is to say that we simply refuse to extrapolate meaning from a deeply layered and gorgeous myth that contains truths about God and humanity and love and bodies and intimacy. We are not so stupid. We only do that when we're trying to prove a point that we don't have any evidence for. What I see in this story is not a mandate to straightness. It's a celebration of the intimate connection that two people can share, physically, through sex, Ooh. Not even about marriage, which I think is fascinating. We actually project that onto it too. But it's about saying that joining your flesh to another is a holy act of family making. That it makes sense and it calls you back to where you come from. Calls you back to the earth, which is sacred. Calls you back to the breath of God, which is divine. And calls you back to the flesh of other humans from which you came. It makes sense, according to this story, that our flesh longs to connect with other flesh. It is a validation of physical touch and intimacy. It is a validation that we long for a new sense of home, that we may grow out of our family of origin and need to build new expressions within the broad family of humanity. It's a validation of love and family through a relationship 
of equals, made of flesh and dirt and the divine breath of God. Adam and Eve is a celebration of the joining of bodies and the intimacy of sex and love and family. To reduce it to Brother Jed's disgusting hand gestures of people's genitals is gross, it's rude, and frankly it says a lot more about Brother Jed than it does about God or about you and me. I just want to wrap here with like a side note that I love the Bible. Now, without a doubt, the most horrifying aspect of Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, is that it is a tool of hate. That it has harmed and vilified and even killed queer, Christian, or queer children of God, including queer Christians. But beyond that most important sin of hateful, willful misinterpretation, I think another lesser but still tragic sin is that it distorts and co-ops and diminishes these beautiful scriptures that are a gift from God to teach us about who we are and who God is and how we are called to love. One of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Or in other words, you shouldn't make wrongful use of the name of the Lord, your God. That, that scripture is not about stubbing your, your toe and like exclaiming badly. It's telling you that you can't use God's name to commit evil or you can't pretend to be serving God while failing to do so. I think this Adam and Steve throwaway queer phobic slogan is the epitome of breaking that second commandment taking the Lord's name in vain. If we have res respect for our scriptures, we will read them with care and with an eye towards loving God. I urged you all last week to approach this project not only with the goal, if you have it, of engaging those haters and trying to debunk, debunk what they're saying, but also of encountering God, of seeing the God you love in the scriptures that were given to you as a gift of seeking to follow the greatest commandments, to love God, to love neighbor, and to love self. So how can these creation stories work on you this week? Not the reductionist nonsense that comes out of the haters, but the true layered beautiful meanings about the power of God to create, about the breadth of God's intention, about the pride God takes in who you are about the power of intimacy and family making, about the beauty and joy of flesh. See yourself, see the world, see God in these stories and grow closer. You are very good. Queerphobic interpretations that obscure the true meaning of scripture, not so much. Come on back next week and we'll go to story number two. But in the meantime, I leave you with this prayer. God, may you guide us. May you guard us. May you swell our hearts with love and fill us with your wisdom. God, you are good and your scriptures do reflect that. May we see past the lies and cruelty of the distortions of this text to see the beauty of who you are and who we are and who we are to one another. God, you are good. May we be good in your image. 
And may you continue to take pride in us, your children. Amen.